The podcast where we talk about women from history, mythology, literature, and or contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. And mine is Alicia. And we are your hosts, as we always are. I don't know why I said and or. <laughs> well, it could be more than one. It could. That's true. They might be a contemporary literary figure. Sometimes they straddle. Straddle the divide. They, they often straddle. And are we going to straddle the divide today? No. No, we're not. All right. Okay. No. No. Well, how are you, Alicia? You've been pretty busy lately. I have. By the next time we do one of these, I'll have submitted that fucking PhD. Yes! Yes! We will party. <laughs> we'll be partying very, very soon. You've got a few more days of, of I crunching. Do. I do. I of, do. Of the crunch. Yeah. About a week to go. Actually, just under a week to go. And then... Yeah. And so the, our listeners out there... I mean, you've been on this journey with me. <laughs> this whole time. This whole time. I should have put you all in my acknowledgements. Yeah. But I, I didn't. So you there bitch. You go. <laughs> there you go. You but, bitch. But someone who is in my acknowledgements, Lauren. Oh. Yeah. Oh, shucks. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race as I recover from the end of semester. <laughs> doing that at the moment it's great it's just had this strange resurgence yeah. that everyone is currently watching it yeah so it's made me i might accidentally say some rupaulisms through <laughs> the episode because I, I really have binge watched a lot of rupaul oh, today okay. All right, sure. <laughs> uh, i thought you were researching for deviant women oh, i've have. been slaving away on my thesis and i thought you were researching deviant women. okay to be honest, Alicia, this episode has been under construction for a very long time. Oh, this is actually has. the longest that I've spent researching any episode. I've been researching it for on and off for a very long time, months actually, yeah. because it is an episode. This is a woman who was actually a request. Um, it was a really good request. So uh, shout out. Oh, well, a th- shout out to Rhiannon, but I think that also the shout out needs to extend to Rhiannon, Lisa and Kat who uh, I think are responsible for bringing, well, who wanted to hear about this woman today. And the reason why we're we're doing her this week is it's NAIDOC week in Australia. Um, we do have a lot of international listeners. And if you're from anywhere else, anywhere you else probably don't world, know what NAIDOC week is. No, NAIDOC does stand for... Oh, NAIDOC, used to stand for. Well, used to stand for, because this language is actually a little bit out of date. Yeah. It is inappropriate, but... National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee. But it's a week that basically celebrates um, and acknowledges the contributions of Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander Australians. And so... And this week's, this year's theme is... Because of her, we can. Exactly. This year's theme is all about celebrating Indigenous women. So how perfect that we should do that this week. Yeah, and so we're looking at the life of a a pioneering Indigenous woman who was a member of the Palawa 
community from Tasmania, and her name is Truganini. Now, there are actually a few variations of her name, so I am going to use the name Truganini, which is the most common version of her name, but I do want to let everybody know that she's also known as Truganini, Truganana, and Truganina. She also was known by the nickname Lala Rook. Oh, okay. So I would say Truganini just because of the Midnight Oil song. Yeah, well, I think that's actually probably one way that a lot of Australians do know of Truganini is through, again, this is a very Australian band, but in the, <laughs> 19, yeah, in the 1980s, there was a band named Midnight Oil and they did release a song called Truganini. Yeah, I knew the song, but I had no idea what it related to yeah because i was i was a small child i didn't understand all the politics of midnight oil (laughs) such politics and actually some kind of problematic politics that i'll come to oh really okay good i'll touch on yeah so keep that in the back of your mind all right sure but before we get started on Trugan and his story, I do want to give a content warning because this is a story that contains a lot of violence and trauma and it also the story of tasmanian australians is one of genocide And so I want to begin with a warning, particularly to any listeners who are of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander descent, that some of the things that we discuss might be distressing. So shall we begin? Where shall we begin, Lauren? (laughs) Take us through the mists of time. Well, we are going to 1810 or 1812. Which one? Well, I don't know. Okay, one or the other. 1811. Okay, we'll call it in the (laughs) middle-ish. Uh, on Bruni Island, which is just off of the Tasmanian coast, south of Hobart, where Truganini is born. And she's the daughter of Mangana, the chief of the Bruni Island people. So this is in the early 1800s, the beginning of British invasion, right? Otherwise known as colonization, but I'm going to be using the word invasion. So she was born in probably the worst time to be an Indigenous Australian, which is at the beginning of British invasion. Now, the Rooney Island people were not unaccustomed to Europeans. The original European name for Tasmania was Van Diemen's Land, which was named after the governor of the Dutch East Indies, who's, look, I can't pronounce his name because it's Dutch, (laughs) but it's Van Diemen's Land. I like the way that you tried to make that sound Dutch. Good job. Uh, You put a little inflection on it. A little bit of it. It becomes Dutch when you put an inflection on it. Yes. And he was named by the Dutch captain Abel Tasman. And so they were the first Europeans to encounter the island of Tasmania in 1642. There'd also, however, been a lot of white, well, like whalers, particularly from America in the 1700s. And many of them would stop in Adventure Bay for food and fuel and rest. So the Palawa people, these are the tribal group, from the area, the Palawa, they were not unaccustomed to Europeans. But things at that stage hadn't yet become violent. <sighs> Until. So a glorious moment of non-violence before all the violence. Before the British before came. Before the fucking British came. And then the British came. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Hi, so- British colonisers. Hi, all of my relatives. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So Tasmania was invaded in 1803 and the conflict began basically immediately. There was actually a mandate from London that stated that any Europeans who committed acts of violence against Aboriginal people must be punished. But But. the first governor, David Collins, failed to publish these instructions. (laughs) Oh, for fuck. Yeah, he failed to publish. Failed to publish. Just an oversight. 
Yeah. And then things really took a turn when in 1824, a uh, really super fun guy named Lieutenant Governor George Arthur arrived. Now, I'm assuming he's not going to be super fun at all. No, his let's just say his Wikipedia page leads with the ethnic cleansing of Aboriginals in Tasmania happened during his governorship. So I think you can probably get an idea of who this man is. Yeah. So Tasmania was a penal colony, right? It was a prison, an island prison, and he set up an actual physical prison on a really skinny peninsula because that meant it could be easily guarded and because the surrounding waters were shark infested. Yay. Yeah, no joke. He also implemented several policies to address the conflict, the growing conflict between Aboriginal people and the British invaders. One of these policies was designed to lure Aboriginal people into camps by pretending to be friendly with them. Yes. So once here, they could apparently be controlled and pacified. Additionally, he implemented bounties for the capture of Aboriginal adults and children, and he also declared martial law, effectively legalising the murder of Aboriginal people. He was actually such a horrific authoritarian that he was withdrawn from rule and returned to London. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So things were really bad under his rule. (laughs) Quite obviously. Yeah. But that came later, unfortunately. So he was left there for a while to allow terrible things to happen. So a campaign began on Bruni Island where there had been fewer hostilities than in other parts of Tasmania. And this is where Truganini grew up. So she did have something of a, a happy childhood. She would swim a lot. They collected shells, fished, all that kind of thing. However, she became a victim of white violence very early in her life. This is where we really need a warning. Okay. This is a terrible story. Mm. Um, Great. If we didn't have enough terrible stories in our last episode, let's have some more terrible stories now. Yeah. By the time she was in her late teens, she had witnessed her mother, Thelgeli, stabbed to death by sailors, and her sister, Lena, was kidnapped and taken to South Australia into sexual slavery. Then when she was 17, she and her fiancé, a warrior named Prawina, were crossing the channel with some white invaders. Halfway across, the white settlers threw the Palawa men overboard. When they tried to get back in the boat, the white men cut off their hands. And I don't think I need to describe what a horrific way that would be to die. Mm. So Truganini not only bore witness to... So this is including her, the man she was supposed to be marrying. that's right, yeah. Her fiancé and the other men, yeah, they had their hands chopped off and they drowned because they couldn't get into the boat. And then she was raped by those men. Oh. And this is... Saw that that was going to be the next step of the story. Yeah. Hmm. So that's her teenage years. It's not a nice story, but it's also not an uncommon story. Oh, God, no. Not by a long shot. No. That actually reminds me in a mythological way, but not in the same way at all. But that reminds me of our episode on Sedna yeah, and that story. Because yeah. I think I remember then when we were talking about that, you saying, oh, yeah. by the way, something. Yeah, this, this makes me think of something that's coming up in the future. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but th- that story had a much happier ending than this story. This story will get happier. Yeah, oh, good. Well, I'm assuming this is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And there's a long way to go. Because that would be a terrible episode. <laughs> So in 1829, George Augustus Robinson, who later became the, uh, this is a title, quote unquote, protector of the Aborigines, came to the island. His job was to try to bring peace between the white settlers and the Aboriginal people following the Grim Cape Massacre. And this was in the midst of what became known as the Black War. 
So while it seems that Robinson had far better motivations than Governor Arthur, who was this... an a-hole. Yes, who was this and sociopath. And from whom, by the way, Port Arthur. Yes. Because you're talking about a penal colony, and of course that's our most famous penal colony, really, Port is Port Arthur. And it's funny, that ne- like Port Arthur in the, I guess, the kind of like collective mythology of Australia, it's such a dark, dark history Port it is. It's a really interesting place too. And it's a fact like the, something I found interesting about going to Port Arthur is how incredibly, sorry, and just to go on a tangent about Tasmania in, in general, is about how incredibly tied up with that idea of convict Australia, that whole identity, that whole region of Tasmania is. And there is, I mean, there is a plaque there. There is a, a little board there that talks about the original Indigenous inhabitants. But it's really, that's not what it's about, mm. though. That's not what that history there is. That's not, you don't go for that history. You go there for the convict history. Yeah. And you go there for that mythology that white Australia has built up around yeah. colonisation and around convicts and around those stories. Those are the stories that you go there for. And these are the stories, like, the story yeah. that you're telling telling today. These are the stories that we're not taught. Yeah, in, that's right. You know, in in history class, we're not taught in Australian studies. Yep. And so it's just it's just a really interesting thing to think that you know we talk about poor Arthur and it's everybody would know who what mm-hmm. poor you know you mentioned that everyone knows. Yeah, you're gonna and talk, it has a, a very recent, very dark history as well. Exactly, much more recent dark history, but that's something that is in the psyche of pretty much every Australian. Yeah. Whereas, of course, a name like Truganini is not. It's not. It's not. No, because like we said, people probably know it from the Midnight Oil song or yeah. maybe Without from, any connection to what no, that actually of, then means. Of who she is or what happened there. Mm. Because the Black Wars were horrendous, absolutely shockingly horrendous. And I don't know how much of that history is actually taught in schools. I actually, I had a, I remember my year 10 Australian studies teacher, I think she told us that she was going rogue to teach us about. <laughs> going the, rogue. Yeah. Like she taught that. us about genocide in Tasmania. Because yeah, it wasn't on the curriculum. As yeah. it wasn't on the curriculum, but yeah. she was like, no, I need to teach you yeah. this history. And she did it anyway. Yeah. And I don't think I really realized at the time that it wasn't Something that everybody was taught. Yeah, but I think that's definitely been addressed in the years since, and that's I also hope so. that's also something that NADOC Week is about as yeah. well. Like NADOC Week, there's so much that's supplied about information on what you can take into the classroom and what you can teach. So it's definitely something that is shifting and changing, but there's mm. still a long way to go. In a Australia. long, long way to go. As I was saying, so we've got George Robinson who has arrived in the island, and it's his job. Like I said, he does seem to have really a lot better intentions than um, old mate Arthur. He wanted to, and I do put this imagine air quotes around the world word rescue the Tasmanians from what he saw as their potential extinction. And this is not without good reason, because of course they were trying to exterminate them. They were trying to exterminate them. Mm. It was a genocide. And not only that, but there was also disease that the white invaders brought with them as well. Of course, as always. He was though, despite these better somewhat better intentions he was still part of a, this larger plot of resettling the palawa into controlled camps however as historian lyndall ryan suggests the palawa people were under constant attack 
by the colonists, not necessarily even in an official capacity yet, although it did get to that stage. But the invaders moved into land and they became uncontrollable. These men that we're talking about, these are rough men. They are escaped convicts and they are whalers and sealers and stockkeepers and they basically weren't able, like the, the authorities weren't able to control them. And they weren't able to stop them from murdering the native Tasmanian people where they found them. And so Robinson knew that it was unsafe for the Palawa people. And his version of resettlement was his attempt to protect them. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) good intentions. Good. Oh, of course. Like, aren't really. (laughs) Yeah. So at the time, Truganini was living in a whaling community on the island, particularly by a ration station. And again, this was the kind of established settlement that was used to attract the Palawa people so that they could be kept track of. Now, Beverly Davis, who is the coordinator of the Bruni Island Historical Society, describes uh, Truganini as being, well, quite savvy. She was a very intelligent woman and she was a teenager at the time, very attuned to the land. Like she knew all about where to, where to gather eggs, die for shellfish. She was, she was on it. Now Robinson. That's the technical term. She was on it. On it. That is the technical term. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now Robinson approached Truganini because she had taken the interest of Woridi, a chief whose wife and child had recently died. Um, Now Woridi was the first Aboriginal man that Robinson had met on the island. And so he was like very important to Robinson's mission. And so with this in mind, Robinson went to the camp to try to encourage Truganini to come back with him. And it seems to have worked because Truganini and Woridi did indeed marry and their relationship seems to have been quite good and they became something of a diplomatic partnership for Robinson and they became really, really central in Robinson's quest to make contact with the Palawa people on the other side of the island and to, well, really perform his role as protector. So Truganini said later in life that she believed that this was the last chance to help save her people. There were few options available to her, really. She had watched her people be captured and slaughtered, and so she could, I guess, risk this future for herself, or she could join Robinson and try to do something. Um, That's what she chose to do. And so she accompanied Robinson and became his guide and interpreter, quite possibly knowing that she had a good chance of doing some good by being on the inside, you know, Mm. because Robinson was actually, he really respected her and they, they seem to have had something of a, a pretty good relationship. He was initiating what he called the friendly missions, which was his anti-violent answer to the horrifically violent goings on on the actual Tasmanian island because Bruni Island is, of course, another island just off of that island. So, yeah, so Robinson does seem to have respected her. She seems to have respected him, even though he did – he's the one who gave her the name Lala Rook, which – So he seems like an okay guy, but he couldn't say her name, so he gave her a different one. Yeah, I think that's about how it goes, which is pretty (laughs) typical of white white people, really, Mm. renaming things that – renaming yeah. people that they have trouble with themselves. <laughs> yes, but we otherwise... We struggle, struggle through pronunciation like we do. Yeah. 
So according to James Boyce, who's the author of Van Diemen's Land, there wasn't any violence or coercion or deceit on this first nine-month expedition that they took together up the West Coast. They met with people, they talked with them, they formed relationships, and they formed a trust. And this actually really did set him apart from a lot of the other white invaders. The journal that Robinson kept of the journey has become also one of the best sources that we have of, well, ethnographic sources of traditional Palawa society. Now, the actual relationship between Robinson and Truganini herself is debated among historians. So Vivian Ray Ellis, who is the author of George Robinson, Protector of Aborigines, and which from what I can tell is not a very good source and doesn't <laughs> seem to be very respected amongst other historians. Okay. Well, yeah, let's, let's use that So I'm then. just going to say this because it exists, but I think ignore it. She claims that the two had a sexual relationship. But like I said, this is dismissed by most people. Lyndall Ryan, however, who is a prominent historian, she doesn't believe that they actually had a particularly close friendship at all, but rather their relationship was kind of built more on mutual obligations and mm. respect. Mm -hmm. So like I said, Truganini was his guide, his interpreter. So she must have been very intelligent because she was able to, you know, Speak and she multiple languages. Exactly. Yeah. And she taught Robinson some Palawa language as well. Apparently he wasn't very good at it though, and had a tendency to simply like substitute English words for Oh, like Palawala how he, oh, much like how he renamed her? Yeah. yeah, but yes, yeah, so Truganini, as I said, she was really very intelligent and much more savvy than him, which proved to come in quite handy because quite a few times she got in him out of some scrapes. Like in 1832, he became stranded on the wrong side of the Arthur River, the Arthur River, by the way, <laughs> where he came under attack. So what does she do? She grabs a raft she rows herself out on those treacherous waters while there are spears flying overhead, and she rescues that guy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she liked him enough to rescue him. She did. <laughs> and this event actually brought her to the attention of the wider public. She made it into the press. She was drawn by Benjamin Dutero and Thomas Bock. So there are a couple of drawings of Truganini around, and those are those two. And so she started to develop a little bit of a name for herself. I like women who do that. However. Oh, fucking hell. However. Oh, what? Robinson's mission wasn't going so well. <laughs> His mission to try peace and, you know, not deceiving Aboriginal people. And so new measures were brought in by the British. The new mandate was the complete removal of Aboriginal people from Tasmania. This included whether or not they were actually engaged in the war or fighting with the British or were living peacefully. It included whether or not they were living on land that the British were actually interested in or not. Many of them lived on land that the British had no interest in. It didn't matter if they were settled on land that the British wanted to settle, whether there were resources that the British wanted. Regardless of any of this, if they were living happy, peaceful lives far away from anything that the British wanted anything to do with, they came under attack. This included, most infamously, the Black Line, which was a human chain that's designed to sweep across Tasmania, imprisoning and murdering any Aboriginal people that they came across. Governor Arthur ordered Robinson to move all of the Palawa people to Flinders Island from the West Coast. He was offered a bonus if he was able to achieve this. That's a, a history that's really difficult because that is a genocide. It's a history of genocide. So... Truganini really starts to kind of 
smell the bullshit really. She realizes that the temporary, like quote unquote temporary resettlement that Robinson promised, which look might have been made in good faith when he originally, originally promised it yeah. because he didn't know that things were going to change. Yeah. yeah. But she realized that this was not going to be the case. She realized that if she stayed on Flinders Island with him, I mean, she wasn't going to make it. So again, Lyndall Ryan, I'm coming back to, she's a major historian in this area. She suggested at this point there were maybe 160 remaining Palawa people on Flinders Island. Wowzers. And they were dying rapidly. From attack or from disease? Both. From 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 both, right? Both. Truganini, she told Robinson that he'd failed her, that he had failed her people. And basically, he needed to do something about it. And so almost as soon as he arrived on Flinders Island, he began to try to find ways to get the people off the island. He took them across to Port Phillip, which is present-day Melbourne, Melbourne. Hmm. where he was about to be appointed chief protector of Aborigines. There, maybe, he could help them to survive a little bit longer. However, this was the land of the Kulin people, who would not normally welcome strangers into their land. However, the Palawa were skilled negotiators and were able to build friendships that meant that they had a degree of freedom to move around the area. So for Triganini, though, she is just about done with Robinson. Mm. Uh, And instead, she befriended two young Palawa warriors, Peve, who is uh, known in the press as Jack, as that white tendency to rename (laughs) people, and Timmy. Timmy. Who was renamed Bob. What? (laughs) That makes no sense. Yeah, no, it doesn't. He was already called Timmy. Yeah. Why did you have to rename him Bob? Look. Who the fuck knows? Rename everything. Rename everything. Let's just enact our power by renaming everyone that we can. Yeah. And two women, Fanny and Matilda. So this little group of Pive, Timmy, Fanny, Matilda, and Truganini, they created something of a of a little gang. Oh, they're oh this is exciting. Banded together. They've decided that they're going to like make a life for themselves, that they're done with Robinson and white people bullshit, and they're going to live with freedom and agency. And they're going to get a little bit of revenge in the meantime. So here we enter into phase two of Truganini's story. And this is the story that really has the Deviant Women label written. Okay. Stamped all over it. I like it. So here we go. Truganini, the Bushranger. Oh, this is a good good area to go Truganini, the Outlaw. I like it. Now, just to pause for our international listeners, Bushrangers, again... Like we, we talked a little bit before about, about mythos. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Australian mythos. Bush rangers are just like Australian icons. They yeah. are the heroes of the bush. For some the reason, Robin Hoods. Yeah, the Robin Hoods of Australia. And for some reason, we put them up on these pedestals because they are because Australia loves to worship the underdog. The underdog. The underdog. But at the same time, we also like to cut down tall poppies. Yeah, I was literally going to say Sorry. we like the underdog until they get too big for their boots, <laughs> yeah. and then we cut them down. Yeah. Uh, basically, we just let people just struggle yes, at all times. Always struggling. Never, never ever don't anywhere. struggle. <laughs> then we won't like you anymore. So our most famous bushranger is Ned Kelly, of who course. I'm sure probably most people know. There was that film starring Heath Ledger, if you <laughs> haven't seen it. 
Um, he was really famous because of the awesome armor that he wore, but really he was just a guy, like his dad was a convict who died when he was like 12. And the story is that his family were very persecuted by the police. And then he became a bushranger to be like, oh, fuck you to the authorities. Whereas I feel like someone like Truganini... (laughs) She's got a very different story. She's got a much better origin story. Like a much better origin story. Well, better? Well, okay, no. No, better is not. No, better is not the word. But uh, maybe a stronger, a stronger one, a stronger back. Yeah, one that one that really suggests why revenge (laughs) might be something she wants to go into. I would rather spend my money at the cinema seeing the Truganini Outlaw (laughs) movie. than another Ned Kelly film, yeah. please. If anyone's listening who has the power to make this happen, like Truganini is an outlaw, is there's, the new mythology that we need. There's a, there's a play, though, isn't there? There is a play. Yeah. yeah well, there maybe is. that play should be turned into a film. Anyway, yeah. carry on. Uh, okay, so Truganini heard about a whaling settlement in the West, and one of these whalers she believed may have been the man who abducted her sister Lena years ago. Oh, okay, because we don't know whatever happened to her. No. And so this group set off to try to try to find these whalers and maybe find her sister. So they set off and they, well... They're outlaws, and so, of course, they did some looting and some stealing, and they they attacked settlers around the Dandenong region, and then they moved on to the Bass River area. And now the area of the Bass Strait Islands was inhabited by more of these rough, rough men. There's a lot of these rough men in Australia's history, let's be honest. It was a very, very big land mm. that was difficult to police. Yeah, it was like that Wild West. It was, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of these people were convicts. As as much as they weren't, that doesn't mean that they were violent criminals Mm. by any stretch of the imagination because most of them weren't violent criminals. Of course, there were violent Criminals among them, yeah. Yeah, and also a lot more men than women as well. So the Bastrate Islands were inhabited by, you know, sealers and whalers, and these men would kidnap Aboriginal women and... Yeah, we know where this is. You know, you yeah. know where you know where yeah. it's going. That's the context for the kind of area that they're moving into. And so Truganini's gang, they attacked. Well, I mean, this is this is exactly what happened to her sister. This exactly is what happened to her sister. She was taken for exactly that purpose, yes. right? So they come across this hut, and it belongs to a man named William Watson, who was a miner who lived with his wife, his daughter, and his son-in-law. And so when the men went to work, the gang attacked. Truganini, though, was really actually quite a gentle outlaw. She warned the women, the mother and the daughter, and she even carried them on her back to a nearby creek so that they wouldn't get hurt in the attack. Hive and Timmy, meanwhile, ransacked the house, stole everything, and then they burnt it to the ground. Mm. Now, Watson comes home and is, you know... Upset. house is burnt down. Yeah. Comes comes home to nothing. And Truganini's gang knew that... This was going to happen. They knew that he was going to set off after them with a party probably. So at the same time, so they're on the run. They're assuming that they're being chased and they come across a party of whalers who were setting out from Lady Bay on the east coast towards Melbourne. And when they reached Coal Creek, Truganini's gang, perhaps assuming that they were part of Watson's revenge party, set upon them. Oh, okay. They shot the first in the head. And he died on the spot. Mm. The second was felled, but 
he didn't die. And so they finished him off with clubs. Oh. Mm. Brutal. Yes. So they also, there was another incident soon after when a man returned to his tent to find it ransacked and empty. And he went in search of the gang with another man. And this didn't end as they planned either. And both of them were shot, although they weren't killed. So things are getting heated. There are these spate of attacks. The police are starting to know who the culprits are. And this massive party is sort of assembled of policemen and um, soldiers to go after them. Now, it was led by a man named William Thomas, and he doesn't seem like the most, like, capable leader of this ragtag bunch of policemen off in pursuit. So Trugan and his gang evaded capture for 45 days, and they're not moving in a very big area. Like, they're in a, a, a relatively small space. So for 45 days, they're doing really well. And of course, this is probably because they are genuinely, they are very, very skilled at mm. using the landscape, you know, at covering their tracks to avoid capture. But also, like I said, William Thomas wasn't the greatest. So this is a... Incompetent? Was he maybe. Was he incompetent? That might be a word that can we can Can we go use. out on a limb and say incompetent? L- well, let's see what Ensign Rawson, writing okay. fr- uh, from his journal from uh, Sunday, October 31st, 1841, had to say about it. We had not gone far when I was astonished by the protector Thomas, who had seldom been on horseback before, came flying past without his hat and a gun that he was carrying for some reason, entangled in his bridle and looking the very picture of despair. Just as we came in sight of the station, we saw him laying on his back. Yeah, so he was not not great, not great. So this incompetent man was leading the search party. It obviously didn't go well. So they they ended up enlisting the help of the Kulin people. Now, this is obviously complicated because they're not the same, like, kin or family group or community, but they're also not white. Mm. So uh, there's also a little bit of kind of speculation amongst historians that perhaps the Kulin people maybe didn't track as well as they could have. They could have. Mm. Yeah. But eventually things, you know, they found them. There was 29 men in this party looking for them and they finally finally came across them they were sleeping at a campfire in the dunes of lake lister so shots were fired no one was well no people were killed unfortunately one of their dogs was shot oh. yeah that's sad. that's sad and truganini was found beneath a blanket she was dragged to her feet and she was made to surrender and then the group were brought back to melbourne or port philip for trial now, at the time of the trial, Aboriginal people were not allowed to testify or be cross-examined in court because, and I quote, they could not speak or understand English and they had no knowledge of a supreme being and could not comprehend the nature of an oath. Oh, God. But she could speak English. She could speak more than one fucking language. She was... <laughs> not, let's not even. Let's not even. But so this is interesting, though, because this obviously means that there's nothing that survives of what she ever said. No. No, that's something so, that I wanted again, to discuss. Yeah, exactly. Again, like with so many of the women we discuss, we don't actually have any recourse to their primary words. We don't have her said. voice. The closest we really have is a few kind of secondhand quotes yeah. that have come from other primary documents like Robinson's journal, for example. Yeah. But no, we she didn't write her own story. Mm. We have no recourse. And she wasn't even able to speak for herself in a court of law. At trial. No. 
Fucking hell. No. So Robinson, though, he he could speak in a trial and he heard about what was going on and he came to Truganini's defense. And I think that this actually maybe does suggest that there was a genuine friendship, at least at some point in their relationship, because he perjured himself for Truganini. He lied in court. Yeah. He told the court that it was the two men who were the leaders of the gang and that Truganini and the other women were really just pawns in their, Uh, in their plan. And they didn't actually have any really, any real power over the situation or any ability to, you know, act for themselves or get themselves out of it. Do we know he was lying? Or did he actually think that? No, like it's it's in many sources it says that he perjured himself. That he did it on purpose, that he actually was He lied. <laughs> yeah, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. He lied. But the jury believed him because he's a white man. What's not to believe? So what's not to believe? And they're just women, right? Like, yeah. Well, you wouldn't believe that they would have power, uh, like, amongst, you know, oh, there's these two warrior men or these three women who is likely to be... The ones in charge, not Truganini. So the two men were convicted and they were sentenced to hang. But I do want to say that they apparently, and I say apparently because, again, we don't have their own words. We've only got secondhand information. But apparently they felt proud of their actions. They felt like they had been writing past wrongs. And after all, I guess that's why Robinson was willing to put himself on the line to to help them because Robinson must have believed as well that they had justification for their actions mm. that they really were enacting past wrongs sure yeah but murder's bad i mean yeah of course murder's <laughs> bad. don't murder anybody for any reason be it revenge or not <laughs> this means that truganini got off relatively lightly and she was placed into the custody of robinson to be returned to flinders island though had she been convicted she would have been the first woman hanged in victoria oh. but she was not convicted and so she was not and what about the two other women? They were also in released into Robinson's custody. To go back they, to Flinders Island. They were all sent back to Flinders Island. Fanny and Matilda. Yes, that's right. So that's where they went. They returned to Flinders Island, and here she parted ways with Robinson. Um, according to his diary, it was a very emotional farewell. He gave them presents. Everybody wept. However, again, this is where that kind of like the lack of primary sources from Truganini's voice is really obvious. Because Robinson, I guess, gives this, like, you know, emotional, like, farewell. But he returned to the island, like, four years later. And apparently Truganini just kind of blanked him. (gasps) Like, she wouldn't acknowledge him. And so maybe their relationship was much more one-sided, perhaps, than Mm. it seems. Or I don't know. But Or she was just still angry. Like, maybe she felt grateful for him for coming to help them in court, but still felt a lot of like anger and resentment towards him because he wasn't able to really help her people like she believed that he would. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think that she must have held some pretty conflicted feelings towards him at the end of the day. But again, that's an assumption because we don't have her voice. So in 1856, she and the surviving Palawa people were moved to a settlement in Oyster Cove, which is south of Hobart. And here she went back into the ways of life, I suppose, that would have been familiar to her um, when she was younger. However, by 1861, though, the numbers of survivors... Because it was like 160 before or something, wasn't it? Yes. The numbers of survivors was now down to 14. Oh, wow. Holy crap. So these were the survivors of what was once 10 different communities. Wow. That's a lot. 
Yeah, 10, yeah, 10 reduced to 14 people. While there were four married couples, there were no children that had been born to these couples for quite some time, and no one really understands why. Could have been because of declining health or, I mean, any number of reasons, really. Or because you don't want to have kids when there's when all you're staring down is the assassination of your the children that you have. Maybe. Why have children if they've got nothing to live for yeah. except just being wiped out anyway? In her final years, Truganini moved to Hobart. Now, before her death, she pleaded to, actually it was to a minister, to respect her body and her burial and she requested for her ashes to be scattered at Dontre Castor Channel. She feared that she would be dissected in the name of science. Because well, a, lot, a lot of people were. Yeah. Well, guess what happened? Oh, she didn't get her dying wish, did she? She got donated to science? Yeah. So she did die in 1876. And she was buried, which is not what she wanted. She wanted her ashes scattered but she was buried at a female factory which is a female workhouse female factories are a fascinating thing Mm -hmm. again another part of the mythos of australia carry on (laughs) but then two years later she was exhumed by the royal society of tasmania which was authorized by the government to take possession of her skeleton on condition that it be not exposed to public view but quote decently deposited in a secure resting place accessible by special permission to scientific men for scientific purposes. What scientific purposes, though? Like, oh, what, what do you need to know? Well, this is what, what science do you need yeah, to do on that? I know. It's disgusting. And apparently, actually, a it's lot of like, the British people at the time also thought it was disgusting. Like, this wasn't like a normalised thing. A lot of je- normal, everyday people were against it. were against it. Yes. But, of course, these, you know, quote, science needs to know important things and that trumps anyone's fucking dying dying wishes. (laughs) Or just bodily autonomy. Yeah, definitely. But that's the thing. There's no such thing as bodily autonomy to these people. They don't have any respect for that in any capacity because that's what this whole thing is about. In 1976, 100 years later, 100 years later so she was so she her remains are left there for a hundred years they were left for scientific purposes she was finally cremated and her ashes were indeed scattered at the dontre castor channel and there's now a plaque that commemorates her resting place where is the channel that's the channel between bruni island and tasmania makes sense it does make sense okay there's a couple of last points on this story firstly Truganini, in, she became kind of famous, wrongly so, famous as the last surviving Aboriginal Tasmanian. And that is not the case. So she was actually the last survivor at Oyster Cove of those 14 people. Mm. And um, that's what's fed into that mythology of her being the last surviving. That's right, yes. So she is erroneously known as or has been historically kind of known as the last quote-unquote last aboriginal tasmanian but truganini was not the end of indigenous people in tasmania she's also i don't she's not a symbol of tasmanian indigenous victimhood either you know she was a survivor and she was a fighter and her people survived to this day the Palawakani language, which was once extinct, is being reconstructed. And the, the Palawa people 
do continue to live in Tasmania. They are descendants of, there was another group of women who were of uh, Truganini's time as well, who actually went to Kangaroo Island, which is in South Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So did she have any children? Look, so this is contested. It is claimed that she had a daughter named Louisa while she was on the run in Victoria. And this child, because she was an outlaw at the time, apparently was raised by the Kulin Nation people. However, yeah, it's kind of mixed stories. So the history is kind of, I mean, it's split whether Louisa is her daughter or not. So there were three Tasmanian Aboriginal women who went to live on Kangaroo Island in South Australia in the 1870s. Um, And there were also Tasmanian Aboriginal people living on Flinders Island and the Lady Barren Islands, and Lady uh, Fanny Cotran-Smith, who is another very kind of famous Indigenous woman of this time. Not, she, not the same Fanny from Fanny and Matilda, though. No. Different Fanny. Different Fanny. She outlived Truganini by 30 years. So, And the Palawa people do continue to live in Tasmania. Like, that's not... And, and actually, there's a lot of controversy with things like the Midnight Oil song, that was kind of subtitled, you know, the last Truganini, the last um, ah, full-blooded um, Aboriginal woman. And these are kind of seen as attempts to also delegitimize Indigenous claims to the land in, in Tasmania. So there are actually a lot of land rights issues um, and political issues tied up with this false mythology. Of, yeah, that they were all wiped out and yeah. that nobody, yeah. Yeah, because it's not true. Yeah. And that land does still belong to those people. It's much easier to ignore Aboriginal claims to land if you can say, well, but you you got wiped out. There's none of you left. And same, there was a a documentary as well about her in the 70s and there were protests about that documentary as well because it also called her the last Aboriginal Tasmanian. And, of course, that's not true. And, again, that was tied up in, in the 70s. There was a really big kind of push towards land rights and so it was very much tied in with those kinds of political issues yeah so that is the story look there are more controversies because of art of her as well oh, paintings okay there was also a controversy about some busts or something or yeah wasn't there? there was a pair of busts of Truganini and Waradi this is a much more recent controversy, but comes from the same kind of activism. That same idea of what symbolises that kind of the last. Yeah, because they were, again, named and labelled the last. Mm. And so, of course, this is it's something that's seen to erase. It, well, it does. It's not seen to. It does erase. It erases and delegitimizes the experiences of living Tasmanian Aboriginal people and there was controversy and protests regarding those busts and they actually called for the bus to be returned to the community and they were successful in stopping the auction of the busts in 2009 so that was a a, a small success I suppose Uh, probably not a small success a big success really yeah so Chukunini's story has a lot of very 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 difficult topics it was a really difficult to story to research, which is why it took me a really long time to do it. I didn't even know if I wanted to share this story because it was so difficult. It took a lot, a long time to kind of actually feel like I could talk about it. But because it's NADOC week, I thought it's yeah, been, I've, been thinking, it. I've been thinking about her for months and months and months. And I hope that we did serve her story well. I know that we can't cover everything. 
in these hour episodes. And I know that there are probably really important things that I missed. But as always, those who are out there who know more than us on this this particular woman, uh, as always, welcome to reach out to us yeah. and fill in those and gaps. Absolutely. Yeah. And help us to fill yeah. in those gaps as well. So. Yeah. As always, please feel free to get in contact yeah. with us. So yeah, it's not an easy story, but I think that what I what I really love about this story and what I hope that everybody can take away from this story, despite all of the many traumas that exist here, is I just love the idea of this woman in the outback leading a gang of outlaws and just saying, fuck you, everyone. <laughs> like... You know, she was a powerful, intelligent, savvy fighter, and she really deserves so much more recognition than she has in our cultural mythology. I don't, people say that she's like an, a, a mythological Australian figure, but I don't think that she is as much as. No, I don't think she so. She should be. I don't think, I think you could do a, a survey of people in the street and you yeah. wouldn't find anyone that knew who yeah. she was. She should be taught in schools everywhere and she should be on a banknote and she should be oh, known. On banknotes. She should be known. There needs to be more people on bank, more important people on <laughs> banknotes. So that was Truganini's story. Thank you for listening to it. Well, thank you very much for bringing that one to us, Lauren. I've been looking forward to that for mm. a while. It's a very, very fascinating story. And, of course, we've touched on a lot of Australians, so it was nice to actually touch this time around yeah. during NAIDOT week on some Indigenous Australians who I've got more in my... Yeah, good. In my... <laughs> I don't know what I'm pointing at. In your my, back pocket? my back pocket? <laughs> no. Anyway, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And there's always more people going on the list. It never gets any shorter. No. It's all right. We'll do like a hundred series of deviant women. <laughs> we'll be going until like 2073. Oh, we will be old, old we'll ladies. Old and no one's listening to podcasts anymore. No, it'll be some new crazy medium. But anyway. But we'll still be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> In our spare time. <laughs> so we hope that you'll still be with us. Yeah. Then, but thanks to Lauren for leading the last few episodes and doing the research. Hopefully, the next episode I'll actually be back on board to do some research because you'll be post thesis. I'll be post thesis. That'll be amazing. So hey, next time I'm gonna do back one. to you. I'm All gonna right. do one. I look forward to it. Yay! <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us. And remember, as always, if you would like to keep up to date with what's going on in the world of Deviant Women, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We are at Deviant Women. And, of course, if you would like to, you can help us by supporting us on Patreon. You can find us there. Or you can jump on Etsy if you'd like to buy any merchandise. And so I think that brings us to the end. As yep. always, we must say a very big thank you to Brendan Davies for the sound. And to India Hui for the music. And uh, we'll be back again in a fortnight. We'll see you then. We will. Bye. Bye. Bye.